Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for uh, the privilege of being back at Dorisville. I'm honored, uh, as I always am, to get to come and share with you just for a few moments. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. I, uh, I'm also grateful uh, for the friendship of your pastor. And uh, I want you to know, um, when you get a good pastor, you should do everything you can to keep him. And you have one of the best uh, that I've ever met in my life. And so, um, now that does not mean that he is not without issues. But that's why God gave him Judy. Amen? And so uh, actually I love both of them and, and uh, appreciate so much uh, uh, their presence in my life. Actually, your entire staff. Uh, I love your entire staff and have had the privilege over the years to work with all of your staff and uh, just grateful for that. I want to talk to you today about something very important. When Pastor Dwayne and I originally spoke, he said, Tim, we're focusing on a discipleship right now and we're focusing specifically on doing what we have to do now to prepare us for later. Interesting thought, isn't it? Preparing now for what's to come later. And coming back to this town, this first time I preached here in Harrisburg, since April of last year when my sister was coming to town to go to work. She's always late. That girl couldn't be on time for anything. She was late for her own birth, amen? And so, um, many of you know, so my last thanks this morning is to say thank you to many of you who reached out to our family last year when Brittany was killed. And your pastors were there for us. They didn't have to give that time. But they did. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for church members here that reached out to us and continue to reach out to my parents and my brother-in-law. He's still my brother-in-law. Couldn't get rid of him then. Can't get rid of him now. Actually love him dearly, just don't tell him that. I don't want to, you know, let him know too much that I love him. I'm actually just loving him so I can still be around Dax and Bella. But how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare in your life for your hardest day? All of us want to prepare for our best day. But how do you prepare for your hardest day? So I want to talk to you today about following Jesus and accepting his invitation. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and prepare for your worst day? So in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read one verse now and then we'll actually... Uh, they told me that they put the 20-minute batteries in this thing, and I don't believe them. So 
Matthew chapter 16, we'll start in verse 24, and then I want to go back all the way to verse 13, and we'll walk through this passage together today. But the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus is still inviting people to follow him, to be his disciple. So then the question naturally presents itself, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? And what exactly is he calling us to? And if we, decide, if we define a disciple as a student or a learner, a disciple then is one who follows and strives to emulate his or her teacher. But then I have to ask the question, what Jesus are we following? The Jesus presented in the Bible or some construct of Western modern Christianity? Because sometimes those two ideas are at odds with one another. The Jesus of the Bible is ridiculed, suffered, and he laid down his life for the broken. He loved and cared for and served the outcast and the untouchables of his day. And many times the Jesus that we have constructed died so that we could live happy, wealthy, and peaceful lives. And many of you today know that our lives are not always happy. We're not always wealthy. And it seems like it's a daily struggle for peace. Following Jesus. Accepting his invitation. Let's pray. God, I need your help today to communicate your word. I pray that you'll help us today to choose, Father. To trust you, whatever your plan for our life may be. I pray that today, God, you would help us to seek your glory above all else. And to ask the right question, God, when difficulty comes. But Father, I pray that today we would set our minds on you. And decide today, God, that we are going to follow you as closely as we can. So that when the days of difficulty come, the light of your glory and your gospel might shine through our lives. Not for our credit, but all for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his kingdom and his purpose. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. I have three points for you this morning. Let me give you number one. Number one is there is a question that must be settled. 
There is a question that must be settled. If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if I am going to choose to be his disciple, there is a question that must be settled. Go to verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Which I think is interesting because Jesus answers the question in the question. Who do men say that I... The Son of Man am. And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar is the word for son, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not Reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Petros, pebble. And on this rock, boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, A good translation so that we can understand it there would be, tell nobody that I'm Jesus, the promised Messiah. Caesarea Philippi was a melting pot for religious pluralism. It was a secular city where humanism was on full display. So Jesus begins by asking this question, who do men say that I am? And John the Baptist, or rather they say, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he aims... The same sort of question in a new and very personal direction. And it is the question that you and I must settle in our heart of hearts if we're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And here is the question. Who do you say that I am? Getting this question right or answering it correctly is foundational. It is Primary in preparation for the hardest day of your life. Getting this question wrong means that you will never be able to accept Jesus' ultimate invitation for your life. You must know that you know that you know the answer to this question in the deepest recesses of your mind. And of course, Peter gives the right profession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus tells him that this has been divinely unveiled or divinely revealed for him. He says to him, Peter, you're a pebble. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now just briefly, when Jesus says this, this has been misunderstood and misconstrued many times throughout church history. When Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, the misunderstanding comes in, the word for Peter means rock or pebble, small stone. So when we read that, some people took that to mean, on you, Peter, I will build my church. And that is biblically inconsistent. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not built on any man, save the God-man. He is the cornerstone 
of the church. The stone which the builders rejected. So when Jesus said, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. What Jesus is saying is, your statement of truth is the foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the foundation then of Jesus' church? It is the fact that he is the Messiah of God. He is the son of the living God. That is the foundational piece upon which the church, the ecclesia, the ek called out, uh, or ecclesia is called and ek is out, the called out ones, the, the ones who are gathered out of the world, that's the church. And we only stand as the church because we have a Messiah sent from God. Let me just make a quick point here. Notice in verse 18, it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build, what? My church. It's not my church. I don't get to choose how we do church. It's his church. He chooses the message of the church. He chooses the methods of the church. It is his church. But then watch what he says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the gates are never an offensive measure. Gates are defensive in nature. So the only way that gates are ever successful is when the opposing army stops marching against them. I'll wait a second. That line goes a lot better when you say something back to me. Now think about it. Gates are defensive in nature. They are not offensive in nature. So the only way gates can prevail is when the other army stops the onslaught. Church, where are we? We are the silent, sleeping giant in this world. We have the greatest message this world has ever heard. It is the message of light and life and power and glory. The church needs to rise up. We don't need to be on the defensive. We need to be on the offensive. By the way, the church will be triumphant when we march against the gates of hell. So the question must be settled. But many of us are asking the wrong question. And the wrong question is this. Who is Jesus to you? That's not the right question. It doesn't matter who Jesus is to you. And then frankly, it doesn't matter who Jesus is to me. Amen. What matters is the right question is this. Who is the Jesus of the Bible? Now I would say to you this morning, it will be easier for you to stay the course and when difficulty comes when we have a biblically accurate view of Jesus. And the Word of God says He is the Good Shepherd. 
It says He is the creator of the world. It says He is the provider of all my needs. It says He is my sustainer and my healer. He is my deliverer. He is my rock. He's my shield, my protector, my defender. He's the one who comforts me when I'm hurting. He is the redeemer of my soul. He is the victor over this evil age and the mighty warrior who conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And the Bible says He is our soon and coming King. That is the Jesus that the Bible presents. And I will follow him into any battle because he has never failed. And so my suffering, my joy, my peace, anything that I experience in this life all serve as opportunities for my life to bring glory to God. This is a question that in your heart needs to be settled. Who is Jesus? Number two. Not only is there a question to be settled, there is a method that must be embraced. Look with me quickly in verse 21. The Word of God says, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter, who knows everything... Sorry, I added that. Took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, here is Peter. Thick-skulled, big mouth, no-filter Peter. Finite in all of his ways. Scolding the infinite God of the ages. This will not happen to you. So Jesus responds in the most appropriate manner. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Jesus said, Peter, God's doing something so much bigger than you could ever understand. From that time, Jesus began to show them he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, elders, and scribes, be killed, and be raised from the dead. The problem here that arises is Jesus' methodology was not what they were anticipating. Remember, there were fights over who would sit on Jesus' right hand and over on Jesus' left hand in the new kingdom. And many times when we choose to become a Christian, if you will, well, I'm going to go to church, so everything in my life is going to get easier. The problem is, the methodology that God employs in and through our lives sometimes is not what we anticipate. We want the easy road, rather than choosing the road that brings most glory to God. So frankly, Jesus was not the king that they were looking for. His actions were scandalous. At worst, and mystifying at best, he ate with sinners. Remember Zacchaeus? He stooped like a servant to wash the disciples' feet. He encouraged them to love their enemies. He encouraged them to serve and love their neighbor. He healed the sick, the lame, the broken. He touched the leper. He touched those with fevers. I mean, Jesus was always with those who are broken and hurting. And he rejected many of the attitudes of the religious elite of his day. 
So Jesus' work and suffering on the cross was not the method they had hoped for. They wanted Jesus to build an earthly army to overthrow the Roman occupation and become the new king of Israel. The disciples were actually hoping to be in the inner circle of a new political power in Israel. They assumed that Messiah or Christ was coming to restore Israel to her former glory. And in doing so, they would throw off this Roman occupation. They would be a a world power again like they were under the days of David and Solomon. And then these men would get to be in the ruling class of Israel. Jesus, when you come into the kingdom, I want to sit on your right. Jesus, I want to sit on your left. And these poor men had no clue. So aligning themselves with Jesus meant lives of power and luxury alongside the new king. Now before we go looking condescendingly upon these men, remember the culture in which they were brought up talking about Zion and the new the Messiah that's coming and all this stuff is going to be in the line of David. So it would be easy to think in those terms. But how devastating it must have been to hear Jesus describe the coming reality. I'm going to be taken to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of evil men. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. And Peter said... That's not going to happen to you. But Peter's thinking was an earthly plan. It wasn't the heavenly plan. Jesus' resurrection was not the outcome they anticipated. This is a good place to remind us that God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes the methods that God uses are not the methods we would choose. As a matter of fact, if you'll think about your life and you'll look back over it, you would see those times of difficulty and think, if there's any way I could avoid that, I would like to do that. If you would have asked me a few weeks ago, Tim, would you like to have your sister here for Christmas? Yes, I would. I didn't say this to my wife or to anyone else. It was just a thought that I had this past week. There are moments where I struggle. We just did uh, family pictures. My in-laws were about to celebrate 50 years of marriage. And so uh, we had family pictures uh, together right after Christmas. They're wonderful photos. Uh, I especially look good in, in all of them that I saw. It's not true. The photographer knew well how to hide me behind people. It was, it was actually brilliantly done. But I'll admit that it sort of hurt my heart. Not getting to do that with that side of the family, but thinking. We can't do normal family photos anymore on my side of the family. What is normal? I don't know what normal is, but that's the thought. I'm just, I'm trying to be transparent and real and tell you that. So when I texted the photos to my parents... I texted them of our kids and and Michelle and I's family together. I actually didn't do the whole family. Because I was afraid it would be a reminder to them that we can't do this. Because both of their children aren't here anymore. We can do it. 
I'm just trying to show you that even in my heart, I mean, there, there are days that I struggle with, man, I, I, wish, I, I wish we could do this differently. I'd give, I'd give a lot right now if my sister would call and yell at me on the phone again. Just chew me out because she was gifted at that. If you look back over your lives, there are times that you'd say, I wish, I wish that was different. Jesus was trying to tell the disciples, there is a method that you need to embrace. And it's not what they wanted, and it's not what they expected, but what it was going to do was going to bring about the redemption of all humanity who would believe. See, Jesus was on a mission to restore mankind's broken relationship with God. He wasn't on a mission to restore Israel to political power. So just a couple of thoughts before I move on. There are people who come to Jesus today because of the false promise of prosperity. Or a misunderstanding of how the gospel blesses and prospers us. When you come to Jesus with a false promise, understanding or a wrong understanding of gospel blessing and gospel prosperity, this is the faith of, quote, if you believe enough in God, He will heal you. And if He doesn't heal you, it's because of a lack of faith. This is also the, the wrong-headed faith of God wants to give you a bigger house, a better job, and a more expensive car. Strange, this is not the methodology of Jesus. Jesus didn't die so I can have a bigger house. Do I want a bigger house? Yes! Because I have four kids and I want some space. But Jesus didn't die so I could get things. Sadly, this is the theology of man-centeredness. It's me and my comfort at the very core. It's not the theology passionate about God's glory no matter the cost. Jesus died so I could be reconciled with the Father. This is miraculous in and of itself. Jesus emptied himself. He died for broken, lost humanity. And we must be clear that coming to Jesus means dying to self and allowing Christ to be the only life in us. He doesn't rather desire to be part of who we are. He demands to be the totality of who we are. So Jesus' economy is different than the world's economy. Following Jesus may mean leaving family behind because you're called to the nations. It could mean that you have to go to the hard places of the world. It could mean that like Job, you are called to suffer. Embracing the fact that we're called to lay down our agendas, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, to allow God to use our lives in any way that He chooses is foundational. True disciples give everything to God. They trust His plan, even though we might suffer and eventually die. And this is understanding that God's plan is to be preferred over any dream I may have. This allows us to see all of our life from a cosmic perspective. So when bad things happen in your life, you have an understanding that God is at work even through the difficulties that I face. We must believe that God's doing a cosmic work for His glory in and through our lives. That's why James 1 verse 2 can say to the scattered believers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
So let me give you a third thought and then I'll close. There is a question that you must settle in your minds. There's a method that must be embraced for us as believers. And by the way, believers throughout the centuries, throughout the world, have not had it the way we've had it for the last couple hundred years in America. We must understand that there is, thirdly, a price that must be paid. Look at verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. There is a high cost to following Jesus. My fear is that we have added Jesus to the pantheon of Americanized Christianity. We must be careful that we do not present a gospel that is easily added to the other gods already existent in a person's life. The gods of family and agenda and style and traditions and entertainment and wealth and position and career and accolades and popularity. I think Leonard Ravenhill said it best. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Ooh. The old preacher said, chew on that. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. So the question is, what is Jesus' invitation for us? Three simple words. Come and die. Come and die. Lay down your agenda. Lay down your plan. And embrace God's agenda for your life and God's plan for your life. Now this is where it gets difficult. It gets difficult because we look at our difficulty and we say, so Tim, are you saying that God did that difficult thing to me? We don't have time for this sermon, so I'm going to give you the abbreviated uh, form of it. Because anytime you talk about suffering in the believer's life, then you have to address the question, why do believers suffer? Why does God, maybe you've heard this, why does God allow good things to happen, or bad things to happen to good people? Let me give you a thought there. The question is, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Here's the problem. There are no good people. So as soon as you hear that question, you just stop the person and say, there are no good people. We are all sinners. We have all chosen to defy God. Now let me give you a little fuller, fuller understanding. Why do people suffer? Well, there's three very general reasons why people suffer, okay? 
And I'm not the authority on every time you suffer, this is what it is. But I'm going to give you the three broad categories why people suffer. Number one, we suffer because we make really stupid choices. And we need to own that. And not blame somebody else because I did something stupid. One thing we love to watch as a family is those fail videos. Like, why is a middle-aged man on rollerblades? And he's at the peak of his roof, and he's got a ramp built down by the gutter, hoping to soar 10 feet and land in a swimming pool. We love those videos. But he's like, I broke both legs and my back because you're an idiot. Sometimes we suffer because we do stupid things. Right? And we just need to own it and say, I'm, I'm, I'm broken, I'm lost, and I make stupid decisions. Anybody in here ever made a stupid decision? Most of us, right? Okay. For those of you who say, I never did that, you are a liar and you can repent. Because <laughs> we all do. We're sinners, right? And uh, sometimes this thing, we just shut the thing off and we just, this looks fun, I'm going to do this. So sometimes we do stupid things. We make stupid decisions. So we suffer. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a broken world. The world is broken with sin. And sin brought suffering into our world. Sin brought death into our world. My mom has spent the last few days at Barnes Hospital. She's had cancer for about five and a half years now. Okay. Is mom's cancer because she did something stupid? I don't think so. Okay. Death is in this world and we suffer. Sometimes we're, it's just because we live in a broken world. There's a third reason, and this is what is so difficult. Does God make us suffer? Yes, sometimes. For those of you who don't want to accept that, I'll change the word. Does God allow us to suffer? Yes. For those of you who just can't go there and can't get it, that God sometimes sends suffering into our life because He's doing something so much bigger. By the way, God chose for the Son to suffer on the cross and die for you and for me. That was God's plan. Jesus suffering and dying was not plan B. It was always plan A. Sometimes... God sends that into our life and we as disciples must be willing to look at Him and say, I trust you. As difficult as my day is, I trust you. And I will love you no matter the cost. Because sometimes God is doing something through you for His glory. And the expanse of his kingdom. Ironically, when we die to ourselves, we find life in dying. It's paradoxical. Join Jesus in his death, and you will join him in his resurrection. I think we've developed 
maybe even enable the consumer-driven culture in American church life. Many times we could simply put out on our sign exactly what Burger King puts on their sign. Have it your way. We're going to change this and we're going to change that to make it more palatable to you. You don't have enough youth ministry. I'm going to go over here. They've got a better youth ministry. I had somebody tell me one time they were leaving the church because we took the organ out of the service. Now we hadn't had anybody to play it in years. So you're telling me believers across the globe are suffering and dying for their faith and you're going to go find a new church because you don't like our music. Huh. Leonard Ravenhill also said the church used to be a lifeboat rescuing the perishing. Now she's a cruise ship recruiting the promising. See... The church was never to be a resort that caters to whims. It was supposed to be a boot camp to prepare warriors for the battle. And when we think about discipleship that prepares, we need to prepare believers for the most difficult day that they're going to face. So you say, Tim, how do we do this? How do we follow Jesus and accept his ultimate invitation to Lay down our lives and let him find glory in us. I think, number one, we rest in the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think we find joy in the fact that his body, the church, will overcome this world. No matter how bleak the outlook, the king has already overcome and eventually we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. That's why Paul could say, these light afflictions do not compare to the glory that we have in him. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has defeated the power of sin and death, which is our final enemy. There was no other way. So Jesus, the sinless God-man, substituted his life as a sacrificial atonement. His bodily resurrection sealed the resurrection of the dead for all of those who die in Jesus. So I think two things become vital for us today, and I promise I close. And by the way, you all remember, I reserve the right to close seven times. Two things are vital for us today. Number one, some of us here today may need to hear Jesus' invitation to come and follow him. He is calling you something to something that's greater for your life. It may be harder for your life, but it's, it's greater for your life because He gets the glory. Jesus lived and died for the Father's glory, and today you need to accept whatever His invitation is for you to do the same. To live and die for the glory of God. And some of you may need to hear that today. I think there's another group in here today, and you need to hear something else. Some of you may right now be in a period of suffering. And it's because you made a dumb choice, because we live in a sinful, broken world and bad things happen to bad people, or because God has brought this into your life because He's doing something big, bigger than me. See, God never promised us it would be easy. He promised us He'd be with us through it. Some of you right now may be in a time of suffering. Well, let's go back. Pastor Dwayne said something to me. He said, Timmy said, we're really trying to prepare right now for what God's going to do later. 
Now, when we hear that, sometimes what we think is God's going to do something really cool in me. But if we understand the life and ministry of Jesus, sometimes it means that our hardest day is the one we have not yet faced. So how do we prepare today? Because somebody in here, some, some few in here, their hardest days may be this year later on. Some of you, your hardest day is maybe already passed. So how do we today grow as a disciple so that when that day comes, my faith will not bend, it will not break, I will not give up, I will not back up, I will not waver when that day comes. What do we do today? There is a question that must be settled. There is a method that must be embraced. And there's a price that must be paid. Settle in your mind today that Jesus is who he said he was. Understand that sometimes we suffer and we do so that God might be glorified in us. And understand that what he's asked of us is to lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for us. That, paradoxically, we will live in him. Let me pray with you. God, it's hard to be a disciple. We need you. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need your power. We need your presence to help us, God, prepare for those difficult days. God, I pray that you will give us the measure of faith that when those days come, we will fix our eyes on you and trust you. God, I pray for this time we have this morning. Pray that, God, you would call us even closer to yourself today. The every, head eye, every head bowed and every eye closed just for a couple of moments. The band's going to sing and Pastor Brent's going to be standing down here in front to receive you. But I just want to ask you a couple of questions just so I can pray for you. Maybe help you think through some of this stuff. Here's question number one. How many of you would say, Tim, I need to accept Jesus' invitation to come and die. To lay down my life, to trust Him with all I am and all I have. Give my life fully to Him. Some of you might have done that a long time ago, but it's a day that you need to renew that. Rededicate yourself to Him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, anybody willing to say, Tim, I need to do that today. I need to refresh my commitment to come to him with all I am and all I have. Would you just slip up your hand and say, Tim, pray for me. I need to do that. I've been holding back. I need to surrender fully. Somebody in here may need to do that for the very first time. 
And I want you to come and I want you to take Pastor Brent by the hand in just a moment and say, I need to surrender for the first time. He'll know exactly what you mean. But the second part of this time of response is this. I want to ask you, how many right now, nobody looking, how many of you would say, Tim, I'm really suffering right now. I'm going through a really hard time. I just want you to pray for me, Tim, that I can keep my eyes fixed on him and ask the question, God, how can you glorify yourself in me? How many of you right now would say, Tim, I'm really suffering? Just keep your hands up just for a second so I can see them all. Wow. Wow. Thank you. You can put them down. I'm going to pray for you right now, but I want to say this. If during this time of response you want to come up here and just kneel, uh, I'm going to ask um, some of our leaders, if you'll just come and kneel, that, that our leaders will just come lay their hand on your shoulder and just pray over you during this time as uh, Pastor David leads us in, in a song. Father, thank you for this time. God, you saw all the hands of those who are suffering right now. And God, why we're suffering sometimes... In the heat of it, God, it doesn't matter why we got there. We're just hurting, and we just need your touch. And so, Father, I pray that right now in this place, in this very moment, God, you would touch their lives with your hand. I pray that, God, while there's chaos in our world and all around us, I pray that your peace would reside and reign in their hearts right now. God, I ask you, sometimes you don't do this, God. Sometimes you leave us in the moment of suffering. Because, God, you're doing something in us and through us for your glory, for your plan. But, God, I ask you right now, if there's any way possible, pick them up and take them out of this situation. <laughs> Father, sometimes you ask us to walk this road. And for that, God, I pray that they would know divine strength. That, God, you would give them eyes to see through your perspective. Lord, I pray that they'd know why. So that, God, they could get up and carry on one more day. Heal broken hearts, God, today. Strengthen broken bodies. And at the end, whether we live or whether we die, God, we pray that you would be glorified in us. that the world may know that Jesus is the King and your love sustains. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, my Savior. God's people said, let's stand.